we do believe in the Holy Spirit. We believe your Spirit has been given to us to empower us, to gift us, to make us knowledgeable to salvation. Help us understand the gospel. Help us understand sin and righteousness and judgment. To inspire repentance. To instill faith in our hearts. And so we believe in the Spirit. We believe that the Holy Spirit has been given to us for these wonderful reasons. And we pray, Lord, that your Spirit would change us today by the preaching of your Word, that the Word would not just come to our hearts and our minds as intellectual truths, but truths that would transform, truths that would change our lives. This prayer is no more important than for those who are not believers. We ask that you would regenerate their hearts through the preaching of the gospel today, that you would Give them faith and repentance and move them to obey the gospel. All of us need this strength. So we pray for it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we do rejoice today, this great blessing and privilege to study the word together. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11. Today we're going to pick up the pace again. We sort of slowed down to sort of walk through that ministry philosophy area, but this section The first 19 verses of chapter 11 are all on the theme of John the Baptist and doubt. There's not one person watching, not even genuine Christians, who have not dealt in some way or another with doubt. Perhaps you've asked these questions in your heart. Is this whole thing, this whole Christian thing, is it real? Is it true? Is Jesus really the Messiah, the Savior of the world? Are are these Bible miracles historically true? Can the Bible itself be trusted? Now, we have different levels of doubt. Maybe those questions are not sincere doubts, maybe just questions looking for assurance, musings, really. Some may be a little more serious. Some of you doubt one aspect of Christianity or Jesus or the Bible, while I might struggle with a different area of doubt in my life. There are different phases in your life that you doubt more or less. Usually when you're not living in the Word and trusting the Bible and repenting of sin when you're doing that, usually you find yourself in a time of greater doubt. Whereas when you're studying the Word and walking in the Spirit, you find yourself trusting God more, having greater faith. So all doubt is not on the same level. There are varying ideas of doubt when you see the Bible. And and as we come to John the Baptist here and his doubt, we don't really know exactly or precisely the level of doubt that he has. But he certainly had some level of doubt. Chapter 10, Jesus had sent his apostles had gone out on this first little mission trip. He spent a lot of time establishing their ministry philosophy. They're going to go out. They're going to receive persecution. They're going to be received themselves because of the gospel. People will listen to them and respond, as we talked about last time. There will be this great split of humanity. Jesus goes on here in chapter 11 and based upon a question that had been given to him through the disciples of John the Baptist, Jesus identifies another reality in this era until we are glorified. There will be times in which we doubt. 
We ourselves will struggle. Even the best of us will struggle. Again, this could be anything from a, a mild question to a deep plea for assurance. Maybe even disbelief sinking into our hearts. Well, it's important to say something here right at the beginning. Uh, some of my favorite historical pastors and teachers and scholars have speculated that, that John indeed was not doubting at all, that, that Jesus used this question. Jesus and John were just communicating uh, through these men, and Jesus uh, did not believe that John was doubting. Uh, there was no doubt whatsoever. But the more I've looked at this, the more I really believe that John the Baptist here was struggling with doubt. And we see this with some of the, the greatest figures in uh, salvation history, from Abraham to Moses, uh, even all the way to the mother of Jesus, Mary, struggling with doubt. And I think this is just natural for the human race, even, even after we're transformed, even after the Spirit comes to us, even after we're saved. And again, it may not be a full-on onslaught of, of doubt of the truth of God's Word, but, but there are questions. There's a need for reassurance. And I think this is a passage with which we are greatly encouraged when we have our doubts. This is why I've titled this message, How to Doubt. We're all going to doubt. We're all going to have questions. How do we doubt? What is the way in which we should doubt? We live in these bodies, and these bodies are riddled with sin and frailty and failure, and we will doubt. And here's John the Baptist, even he, the precursor of Christ, clearly one of the greatest, boldest preachers of all time, even he doubted. And so do we all. Well, this is great encouragement for us about the issue of doubt, perhaps even the current circumstances in your own life, maybe even relative to what's going on in the world today, this, this pandemic. Maybe it's stirred up some questions of, of doubt, maybe mild, maybe severe. And perhaps God would use this study today to encourage you. Well, let's read this passage together. This is a story, and we'll pick up uh, again uh, the pace today as we look at these 19 verses, the first 19 verses of Matthew chapter 11. Let me read them to you. Follow along as I read aloud. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out to the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then, what then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women there has, ris has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven 
is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We have played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. This is the word of God. I think we can break this story down into three parts, three sections. The first part there in verses 1 through 6, this is where John's question is formally asked Jesus, and Jesus uh, uh, responds to that question. The second section is verses 7 through 14, and there we see Jesus begin to address this issue of doubt to the listeners, the people who were there with him. The third and final part is the story found in, uh, part of the story is found in verses 16 and 19, and there we are warned against the determined doubt of individuals such as the leaders, the Pharisees, and others, the people who are bond, bound to their sin, they're bound to their doubts. And Jesus speaks to each group. So again, this answers the question, how should we go about doubting? Or when we doubt, what should we do? Or simply, how to doubt? Let me give you three points that flow from these three sections. Number one, Study the Word. Study the Bible. In order to grow in your mind, in order to grow in your intellect in terms of the Bible, you need to study the Word. That is to say, pursue an intellectually informed faith. John asked this question of Jesus through some of his former disciples. We'll get to John's circumstances in a little bit, but he's there in prison and he sends word through his disciples to Jesus. Verse 3, are you the one? Now, we're supposed to be waiting for another. And how does Jesus answer it? Well, essentially, Jesus says simply this. Look at what the scripture says about the Messiah and look at my life. Do some study. Do some analytical work. Study the Bible. Look what the Bible says about the Messiah. Study what the promises were, the ancient promises about the Messiah. And then look at my life and ask this question. Are these things being fulfilled? And all of these ideas, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers cleanse, deaf hear, dead are raised, poor have, and this would be sort of the main issue, the poor. And we know Jesus' use of the word poor can be broader than just financially poor, but spiritually poor, the poor have good news or gospel preached to them. These are activities that were predicted in the Old Testament about the Messiah. Now Jesus is saying to John, go back to the word, John, go look at your Bible, go study the Bible, or at least remember the Bible. If you don't have one, remember what the Bible says and ask this question, am I the Messiah that the Bible promises? And the answer is, of course, yes. 
I like Isaiah 61, great messianic passage. Jesus quotes it about himself in Luke chapter 4. The Spirit of the Lord has go- is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. There's that main theme. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives, the opening of prison for those who are bound, to proclaim the year of our Lord's favor, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all those who mourn. And Jesus is calling upon John to do some intellectual work, to, to worship God with his mind, to study the Bible, to grow in his intellect, to grow in his mind. You know, there has been a a very determined effort over the last 150 years to neuter Christianity of anything intellectual. There's been a desire to, to make Christian and Christianity dumb. Very determined effort. Besides that, as history has moved forward, there are are things that have happened, just historically speaking, things that have happened that have, that have caused Christians to sort of back away from doing intellectual work, from worshiping God with their minds. Many Christians, not all Christians, obviously there's always those who are, who are trying to grow in their faith in this respect. But we see whole swaths of Christianity sort of backing away any kind of intellectual work, seeing intellectual work in terms of the Bible, in terms of study, in terms of their worship time on Sunday morning, seeing it as that sort of a, a negative. Now, what has happened? I, I wrote down some things, things that have happened. What, is, what has happened in these last 150 years that has caused so many Christians now to be sort of negative about intellectual work as it regards our faith? I think one thing that has happened is there has been a wholesale redefinition, redefinition of faith. You could say Christianity, uh, Christian faith has moved from a childlike faith to a childish faith. Sometimes this is called blind faith. This kind of blind faith falls prey to that old lie Satan and the humanists and the atheists peddle in order to cast aspersion on Christianity. How have they redefined faith? They've said faith is essentially the opposite of reason. Reason is thinking. Reason is rational. Reason is mathematic. Reason is scientific. Reason is objective. It is unbiased. Whereas faith is emotional, subjective, irrational, and mindless. Even Christian philosophers have come along and bolstered this terrible argument. Kierkegaard and Kant, notably, have said that having faith in Jesus is essentially a blind leap. They're the ones that, Kierkegaard essentially is the one that coined that term, this blind leap of faith. They said you can be a Christian and you can be reasonable and scientific, and the way you do it is just by taking that blind leap, closing your eyes, crossing your fingers, and just believing in contrast to rational thinking in contrast to reason, in contrast to science, in contrast to what is objective, and just taking this blind, subjective leap. Well, you read the Bible, and this is most certainly not what the Bible is talking about when it discusses faith. 
We see over and over there's this call for evidence. We see this evidence given for person after person. In fact, if you think about it, the Gospels, the four Gospels, are based on eyewitnesses. God wanted there to be firsthand, not rumors and stories. And, and as much as people try to prove that, it, the evidence is clear. This is firsthand. These are firsthand accounts of what happened in the days of Jesus. But again, this attack, this redefinition of faith, this is a method that people have used, and even Christians themselves have sort of acknowledged or gone along with, even if it's not true. They've redefined biblical faith. What else has happened? Well, like I mentioned earlier, the force of history. Things have just happened in history, right or wrong, just things have happened. As chronology chronology has unfolded, Christians have grown fearful of doing intellectual work. Maybe they've just decided to uh, set that aside uh, for whatever reason. I was reading the other day about how the evangelical free church spread across the West. If you didn't know this, before the middle of the 1800s, pastors were part of the, the, the scholarly group, the intellect of town. They were valued as doctors or professors. And they had more schooling than most people. They had done more study. They had given more thought to everything. Of all the folks of the village, the most wise, the most thoughtful, the most trained and educated, was it was the pastor. It was the pastor of the local church. He was a pillar of the town, a, a leader in the town in terms of his intellect and wisdom. He was the most well-read, the most intellectual, and so forth. But this all changed as America expanded westward. And the E-Free Church, as I mentioned a second ago, there was a great passion. There was this wonderful, God-honoring zeal to, to get the gospel west. They wanted the, those who were indigenous groups that were living west of uh, the colonies, they wanted them to, to hear the gospel, and they, they wanted to have churches as, as the country, as people migrated westward. They wanted people to hear the gospel, and they wanted there to be preachers. And so they would literally, in a, in a town where there was an e-free church, they would draw straws. And the guy who got the shortest straw would pack up his family and all his belongings and he would take his family and they would get on a train and they would ride the train until the railroad ended. And they'd get off there and they would plant a church. They'd start a church there. At least churches started popping up everywhere, which surely we can say is a good thing. And they started popping up everywhere, but they were led by pastors who didn't know very much. They'd never been trained. They'd never been properly tested. They'd never been tried or proven. The only qualification he had is that he could draw short straws. Not much different in the Baptist world, such eagerness. There's an eagerness to get the gospel out. Little attention to the qualifications of pastors. In fact, the pastors, at least of those in the Baptist churches, they began in the 1800s, like I said, to move down in terms of their intellectual status. They began to move down really toward the bottom in terms of skill, intellect, training, respectability even. Gone were the days of a pastor who received a double honor. or Gone were the days of trying to fully uh, remunerate this man because he had been had such valuable wisdom. No, because he didn't have valuable wisdom. And the attitude sort of evolved to something like this. Well, you can't do that because you're not skilled enough. You can't do that because you're not smart enough. Well, there's always pastor. And over time, as these pastors who may have had a great 
heart for the gospel and for God, but were not trained and had not trained their minds and their intellects, they began to pastor churches all over the country. What eventually evolved is that he didn't have much skill in terms of preaching. He didn't have much skill in terms of his intellect. And so he became more of of a neighborhood chaplain. He just sort of checked on everybody. And that's about it. So in history, with that passion, as that passion to move westward, to passion to evangelize, to, to propagate the gospel, as that moved west, people so eager to do that, they didn't think enough about the qualifications of pastors, Uneducated pastors do not make educated churches. They do not grow the intellectual ability of a church. Let me tell you something else. This also happened in history, but it's it's big enough I wanted to draw out. There was a, especially from the early part of the 1900s all the way through even now, there is a positive desire to reject theological liberalism or modernism. From the late 1800s or early 1900s onward, there, there has been this march of modernism. Again, that, this is that back to that old idea I mentioned earlier, this redefinition of faith, that, that Christianity is not intellectual, it's sort of dumb. And, and what conservative believers began to see is that people would go off to seminary or to college and they go off to the, the institutions of higher education and these young men would, would learn, and the more they would learn, the more they would be drawn away to, to liberal thinking, to redefining faith. They became more skeptical. In fact, the longer they were at the seminary, the more they studied, the more liberal they became. And so Christians observing this, they, they grew very skeptical about that book learning. We don't need no book learning. We don't want any... Intellectual pastors, we need someone who's sort of dumbed down a level. So they, so they really wanted to keep things simple, keep things safe, keep things blind, really. They didn't want to grow in their intellect because they felt like an attempt to grow intellectually, an attempt to grow in your mind would lead to liberalism. In fact, this happened, uh, this became real to me one time. An old guy came up to me and said, Pastor... You, you preach really intellectual sermons, and, and you, you, I just want to warn you, you don't want your people to think too much. If you keep on going uh, on intellectually like this, they'll become liberals. They'll be thinking too much. They'll doubt Christ. So keep things simple. Don't go too deep. Well, I understand why he says this. Because we've seen a, an attempt to be intellectual turn into a desire, uh, turn into flat-out liberalism, a rejection of the Word. And so the safe thing to do is just to not pursue a mind that worships God at all. One other, uh, or another force that caused you to reject intellectual, biblical growth, and, and I think this is probably the thing that affects us most, most right now, and that is the popularity of shallow Christianity. The fact of the matter is, a mindless faith is the most appealing kind of Christianity, it's, it's most appealing to people who want to give up very little but still go to heaven. The first thing they're willing to give up or the, the only little thing they'd be willing to give up, uh, give up is thinking too much about much. And boy, a shallow faith w- works, doesn't it? It draws in thousands. I, I will say this. 
since the church growth movement, you'd think that these churches and all these mega churches, the explosion of, of churches by uh, thousands and tens of thousands of people, you would think that this would have a massive effect on America. Not only could you say, and I say, that is definitely not true. America has only grown, grown worse in these days. But it's actually true in terms of church attendance. Where we used to have thousands of, of tiny, small churches, we still had more people going to church week in and week out than we do now with the abundance and superabundance of mega and giga churches. So they didn't accomplish their mission in the least bit. It's actually impacted Christianity in America in a negative way. Despite that data, shallow, unthinking faith is the most appealing faith that's presented today. Far more attractive than a guy going on and working his way through verse by verse and spending time trying to look at the nuances of text and, and teach everybody that's the, everything that's in the Bible. No, what's popular is to avoid the hard stuff, avoid the things that people disagree about, just teach the positive stuff, have a shallow faith. That's the most popular kind of faith there is today well there's one more idea here why this idea of rejecting intellectual an intellectual faith a, a mindful faith why this has been rejected why do we struggle with this and that is plain and simple pure personal laziness people don't read easier to sit in front of a tv people don't study they don't want to be told that their thinking needs to be corrected. They assume that their thinking is fine. They just need some exterior reform. They don't want to think too deeply because they are simply lazy. And this gets us back to the main point here in Matthew 11. Jesus tells John, essentially, John, take up and read. Study the Bible. Pick up the Bible. What do the prophets say? What do you see being said? Do I measure up? Do intellectual work. Worship God with your mind. Ladies and gentlemen, the more you do this, the more you study the Bible, the more you fill your heart with, with truth and with the Word of God, reading solid books, going to solid biblical sources, the more you do that, the more your faith will expand and your doubt will dispel. And that's not the only thing Jesus says here, but it's the first thing. Go to the Bible, study the Word, expand your mind, and your faith will grow with it. Okay, that's number one. Study the Word to grow in your mind. Second, pray for obedience. This is praying for an openness to God's truth, a, a transformation by the Spirit to, to the truth and the commands of God in the Bible. Be willing to accept the Word of God for what it really is, the Word of God. And Jesus has responded to John's guy. He sent them back with that very first message. And then essentially Jesus turns to the crowds and, and continues to discuss this subject about doubt. What's he say? Verse 7, as they went away, so the disciples of John are, are leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? No, we didn't go to see that. That's the implied answer. 
What did you go out to see? A, a man dressed in soft clothing? He wasn't dressed in soft clothing. Well, obviously we didn't do that. Behold, those who wear soft clothing, Jesus says, are in king's houses. What did you go out to see? Jesus says, you went out to see a prophet. Yes, but even more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. But all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. Verse 14, if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears, let him hear. Underline those last two verses, verses 14 and 15. A very simple definition of faith is this, taking God at his word. In Jesus' language here, his vernacular, it's accepting it. Accept the fact that this is the man, this is the the preparer of my way. This is the Elijah that was prophesied. Or, his other words were, have ears to hear. Submit to God's word. Jesus turns to the crowd and basically addresses their own doubt. Did you believe John is just some reed? Do you believe he's just a, a nicely dressed guy? Or do you believe the greatness of John, that he is indeed the precursor to the Messiah? If you look at Hebrews 11 and look at that roll call of the faithful, all these different people listed, you can go there later. This is what they fundamentally did. They fundamentally did. They heard the word of God. They understood the word of God. And they obeyed the word of God. This is the very definition of faith. They listened, they understood, that's that mental part, that intellectual part, and they obeyed. And so when you're doubting, when you're lacking of faith, you go back to the Word, but you don't go there simply to, to grow intellectually. That's the beginning of the process. You are growing your mind, you're growing your faith by growing your mind, but that's not the end of the process. That was point one. But because these are not just intellectual words, these are the words of God, you treat them as such. And you obey them and you, you let it sink, sink into your heart and you, you change your life because of these life-giving words. And Jesus says John was a man who had the Spirit of God in him. He was a great, true prophet that announced the arrival of the Messiah. But guess what, Jesus says, even the least in the kingdom will be greater than John. I don't think we have to read too much into that. I think he means we'll have the spirit like John did, only we will also have this greater benefit of living in this kingdom after Christ had died and risen and ascended. We have a greater privilege than even John did. Something else Jesus says there is sort of strange. From the days of John the Baptist until the kingdom of heaven, uh, until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. What's this mean? Simply this, that people of true faith battle against doubt. 
In the Old Testament, it was that way all the way up to John. People who had true faith battled it. And John himself battled it. Kingdom people in that era, as the kingdom began to, 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 to form there with John and then Jesus, kingdom people didn't just show up for good music and a little slap on the wrist or some sort of easy tips on life. No, they, they, they were convicted of sin and death and judgment and they, they had this inner battle and they fought this. They were convicted of these things, and finally they exerted faith and repentance in this great battle of their soul. By the grace of God, they exerted that faith. They expressed confession and repentance. They denied themselves. They did violence to the old man. And by that violence, they entered the kingdom. So as you read the Word, it is not... Simply point one, it is point one, it is an intellectual endeavor, it is something that we ought to take on in a new and fresh way. But as you read the Word, you pray, you do battle against your flesh, you do battle against any doubt of God's Word, you you fight your sin, you pray, Lord, open my heart, give me a desire, change my life, move me to obedience. You do as... The old Puritan Thomas Watson said, you take heaven by storm. You enter by a violent work. You seek to obey God. Third paragraph and the third thing to do when doubting, humble yourself. Humble yourself. You do this by acknowledging your failure. We see the story here. It goes all the way back up in verse 2. It says, John heard in prison, and he sent his disciples to ask. And there we get a little context that's picked up here again at the end. What's the context? Well, John had been preaching repentance for many years. He had preached that the people needed to prepare their hearts, repent, and prepare their hearts for the Messiah. Ready themselves spiritually to respond to the gospel. He, He didn't have a problem boldly preaching against sin, calling people repentance. He probably most notably preached against Herod. This is not Herod the Great who was around when Jesus was born. That Herod died just a few years after Jesus was born. This is his son, Herod Antipas. This is the Herod who ruled in Galilee, who would take part in the death of Jesus, and as we find out in John's life, and John's death as well. John had no problem pointing out Herod's sin. I wonder if we would do well to point out the sin of those who try to lead our country if we're afraid to. John had no fear. He pointed out the sin. He pointed out the sin of Herod. Herod, uh, basically, he committed incest and polygamy by stealing his brother's wife and... uh, you know, first having an affair with her and then stealing her to be his own wife, adding to his horde of other wives, harem of other wives. And so John began preaching against this, or, or perhaps even just in a sermon, he would, he would mention this kind of sin. And Herod heard about this and threw John into prison. And you can be certain this is not like the prisons of the day where there's television and exercise time and yard duty. No, you're usually in chains all day long, every single day, and the food that you get is only food that 
somebody kind will provide for you. The prison certainly would not provide for you. Herod certainly would provide for you. This was a very hard time for John. He's in prison. Perhaps many months of solitude, many months of hardship. Maybe when some of his old disciples came in and and gave him some food, he, he he had found himself in a moment of great and severe doubt. And he asked them to send these questions to Jesus. You can only speculate about his heart there, but one of the commentators I read mentioned that John A. was suffering in prison. That is true. B., he was drained emotionally and physically. And C., John had some unbiblical expectations of the Messiah. And as all these issues converged, They conspired together and created doubt in the heart of John. The proper response to any kind of sin, even if it's understandable sin, you could say, well, I can understand why John was feeling this this way. Even if it's doubt that should be expected doubt, if someone's under distress or having a hard time, the response is the same. Confess your sin, humbly acknowledge it before God. Now, don't waller in it and feel bad and lick your wounds and be all uh, self-effacing. You just confess it, humble yourself, say, God, I'm not perfect. I failed in this area. The fact of the matter is, any doubt, any doubt is due to some level of sin. And so humility is what, it, what is required, a willingness to confess and submit with a repentant heart. Now, sometimes you have to think through this. What am I actually doubting? Am I really doubting God, or am I doubting my circumstances, or do I have different expectations? You just need to study the Bible, and that's where that first idea comes to life. Study the Bible. What is the Bible? Where, where is my sin? What, what is my sin? Is this a sin, or is it not a sin? Is this doubt, or is this faith? You have to study these things. But if it is indeed doubt, if it is indeed a doubt of God, not necessarily a doubt of other things, but a doubt of God, if, if, it really, if you really are doubting God, there is some level of sin in there, and you need to humbly repent of that sin. John's own unrealized expectations may have been mild, but they were there. And they caused doubt to seep in. Well, Jesus gives us an extreme example of sinful expectations, of sin sort of taking grip of of people's heart and and dominating in the sense of doubt. Verse 16, look what it says. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in a marketplace and calling to their playmates, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So Jesus is pointing out this this petulant attitude toward God, toward himself, toward Jesus. This petulant, demanding attitude. We, We played this kind of music. Do this. We played this. Do this. We're going to criticize you whether you're eating and drinking or whether you're not eating and drinking. And what Jesus shows for us is that it's not about the issue, it's not about the details, it's not about some intellectual problem, it's a problem, it's a sin in their hearts. It didn't matter what Jesus did or what John did, they're going to criticize him. 
Unbelief, a lack of faith, doubt, is not ultimately an intellectual problem. Though it can be answered, though you can study intellectually, ultimately it is a problem in your heart. And boy, what a great thought to pass on to those of you who are thinking about becoming a believer, a, a follower of Jesus. Don't tell yourself, oh, I, I just have these intellectual questions that need to be answered, and once they're answered, perhaps. No, humbly admit that what you have is a heart problem. Sure, you can go study those things, and again, that's great, and it should encourage your faith. It should strengthen your faith, especially if you're a Christian, to, to do that intellectual study. But ultimately, doubt, if it's a sin, is a sin from the heart. Christians, we all know that doubt doesn't just go away 100% in salvation. We find victory because of Christ, and we're, but we're still battling. How do we battle this? We battle by bowing before God in humility, admitting our sin, admitting our pride, humbling ourselves in the sight of the Lord so that He would strengthen us and lift us up. Well, my prayer for you today is that you find another level of joy today. Many in this era of human history are doubting, are struggling. We discover that one of the, mo- the greatest, most bold voices for Jesus, John the Baptist, he doubted, he struggled. And maybe you can be encouraged with that knowledge along with Jesus' instruction of how to doubt. That you would find joy and victory over that doubt as God gives us strength. Let's pray for that strength right now. Father, we do humbly come to you acknowledging our sin, acknowledging our doubt. We pray, dear Father, that you would bless us as we seek to identify that sin as truly a heart sin, if it is indeed true sin. I pray that you would give us a desire to understand Jesus, perhaps in a new way in our, in our minds. And as we do that, Lord, may we obey you. May we hear your voice and study your word as an intellectual endeavor, but also as an endeavor of the heart, a, a desire to obey. And Father, help us in this endeavor today. I pray this is true, especially for those who don't know you. Open their eyes and their hearts to their need of a Savior Give them the humility. Change their hearts so they can see their sin and have genuine faith. We ask this in the name of Jesus.